Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, we're kicking off our Zhang Yimou series with his 1990 story of love and tie-dye, Judo. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever had that one uncle that you thought you might like to stuff in a bucket, then you're just the kind of person we welcome to The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, let's see if we can pull Games Master Stephen Smart away from his game of Dunk Uncle in the Blue Die so we can find out who won this week. Hey guys. This week's movie was Hedwig and the Angry Inch from 2001, directed, written and starring John Cameron Mitchell. Congrats to first-time winner Tom Tarn, who guessed it on Image 1. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday, so thanks guys and see you later. We got a blot spot. A friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his rebound on the Danish girl, and Andy, I feel like I'm an island. We're an island, buddy. (laughs) He says, I have so many problems with the storytelling in The Danish Girl. It starts feeling simply like Einar has a fetish for women's clothes, then it is played almost like a split personality disorder. It's all the things I imagine transgender people would hate to portray their lifestyle. But more than anything, I hate that Lily is presented as one of the most selfish human beings in the world. She seems to have zero care for Gerda, no sympathy, and won't even listen to sound advice. Not a movie I ever want to watch again. Your rank 266, my rank 267. Now we're only one apart, and yet it feels like a continent. <laughs> An ocean in that An one. An ocean lies between us. I did. I feel like we ended in the same place, but how we got there is is definitely different. And and you know, to to his credit, I I I I, I think it's hard to go in not liking some of these these actors and and their portrayal and then really find an affinity for the movie naturally and i went in really you know rooting for them so i think i you know i was a little bit more easy on the film overall even though it didn't clear our hurdle and and it didn't you know work well in our ranking but he then ben came back and and shared a a, a, an article by a trans uh woman who uh, you know made a vociferous case uh, against uh, against the film. And so, you know, as much as I try to say, well, I don't want to judge because I don't really hang out in these communities. As soon as I'm <laughs> faced with a resource from the community that says this movie sucks, I kind of have to say, okay, maybe it doesn't do a good job representing the, the community. I still, I, I still found things to like about it. Well, I, I, I just wonder, is it representing the community or is it just that one person's opinion? I, you know, I just, I just don't know. I didn't look at the article, so I, I'm not quite sure exactly uh exactly how it's portrayed but um you know it, it also was a different time and i think that there's yeah. something to be said for that i mean this was a story that took place you know what like 80 years ago yeah i agree all right anyway andy it's time let's do trailers <laughs> my trailer this week is for an animated film that's actually nominated for um uh, for an Oscar this year. It's called My Life as a Zucchini. It's a Swiss film. Um, and it's it's got this really, uh, it's it's a stop motion animation film. And it's just got this really, uh, just kind of adorable design. Everything looks kind of quirky and fun. And I think what um, instantly sold me on this, uh, this film is just looking at the character design for all these different characters. It looks like something that like, 
I would have drawn as a kid, like the way that the color, you know, the just body parts are, might be different colors, like their nose might be a certain color or whatever. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's it felt very childlike. And that really kind of brought me back to uh, to my youth when I watched this trailer and I also felt like there's this there's this this hint of uh, a moonlight kingdom sort of thing, this coming of age sort of thing that I really drew from this trailer. You've got this little boy whose parents have died, and he's put in a foster home, and you know you've got basically it's kind of a life in the foster home sort of movie. But a girl is brought in there, and he and this girl kind of there's this interesting connection that they start forming. And I I don't know I just really enjoyed these characters, and I enjoyed the the sense of the the um, viewpoint I think is what uh, probably the best way I could define it of of creating this world in a way that it feels like it's from a kid's perspective. So I, I really enjoyed uh, watching this trailer and I'm really excited about the movie. What did you think? I I was entranced uh, by it. I thought it was beautiful. And to your point, you know, I mean, I you first see the characters and they really do look like they've just been scrapped out of kind of remains on the Play-Doh table. And then you look at their eyes and the way their eyes move. And like, I find my joy in the characters emanates from their eyes out. And suddenly everything else became so much more believable because I think the eyes were just so perfect and, um, and charming. Uh, And by the time we meet the girl, right, that his sort of love interest, his that that ends up in their foster home. I, I find every one of these characters so touchingly beautiful, so charming that I I'm really uh, lost in them. I think the trailer was beautifully cut. It told told the story uh, that I wanted to hear with these characters in just two minutes, uh, and it it really made me uh, interested to see it when it hits. Cloud uh, Barras is the director of the film. It looks like co-wrote it. Also, and this is uh, his first uh, feature. Everything else that he's done has been a variety of animated shorts. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how this one uh, comes together. It's uh, been having a, a festival releases around the world. And then, of course, with the, uh, the big Oscar nomination that it got recently, um, it's finally getting a limited release here in the United States, February 24th. So coming up right quick, uh, followed by... Um, uh, Serbia, Japan, Norway, and the UK, where it opens May 5th. So there you go. My trailer, Andy, I, I'm i just only in the last few minutes have I stumbled into a puzzle that I can't answer. So I'm just going to tell you about the trailer and then leave you with the mystery while I try to unravel it. Um, so it, the, the trailer is punching Henry. It is from director Gregory Vane's uh, and his, uh, he co-wrote it with the star of the film, Henry Phillips. Uh, he, it is the story of this hapless songwriter, Henry Phillips, according to IMDb. He's lured to L.A. when a veteran TV producer decides to make a show about the life of a loser. And I, I don't know. You know, you have to be in a, in a place when you see trailers. And maybe I am just in a place of being really open to stories about creators who are, uh, you know, who are kind of punched down upon. And this is the story of that guy. Everybody who he runs into is somehow insulting him, is, uh, you know, treating him as less than until he comes, it sounds like, across Sarah Silverman, uh, who actually finds uh, that she is entranced by his story. Um, I think Henry Phillips plays a, a really charming, hapless guy. Uh, his jokes aren't that funny. Uh, and 
that makes the the uh, the story itself that much more heartwarming. Also stars Tig Notaro, J.K. Simmons, Mark Cohen, uh, Eileen Ratner, Mike Judge, Jim Jeffries, uh, and uh, the cast looks great. Um, the mystery is that Gregory Vanes Vanes also did a film called Punching the Clown in 2009, winner of the Audience Award at the Slamdance Film Festival, a realistic comedy that tells the story of Henry Phillips, a hapless modern-day troubadour who grinds his way through the... It's, it, it is... I don't know if it's a prequel. I don't know if it's somehow related. Uh, it, it, sounds, it, it sounds like a, another Henry Phillips who plays a different kind of music and now... Uh, is is dealing with the same story. I mean, he goes to L.A., he's trying to shake things up in his life and look for luck in new places, and it's, it, it's a very strange mystery. I don't know what the relationship of these movies uh, is. I don't know. How did the trailer hit you? Yeah, I loved it. I, I loved watching the trailer. I love these characters uh, in it. I mean, Sarah Silverman, I'm always hesitant with, um, but every now and then she pops up in something that I'm okay with. And this was one of those things. Plus it's got JK Simmons and Tig Notaro is just, I think one of the funniest women out there right now, her stand-up comedy. It just, uh, it just kills me. Just the whole sense of it. I, I really enjoy. And I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, I'm just curious to see kind of how this movie unfolds. And like you, I started looking at this whole mystery of punching the clown, Mainly because this one, it's titled Punching Henry, and then it says original title and Punching the <laughs> and Clown. Punching the Clown, right. <laughs> so it's like, what did they just get more money and remake their movie? The I, original I can't figure movie it out is, either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, I, the, the original movie's an hour 31 minutes, this movie's an hour and 38. How, what it, What's going on? <laughs> I don't so know, it's weird. It, it makes me want to see them both. Uh, uh, this one I'm going to have to wait for, although it has been floating around for, uh, for, uh, some time. It opened at South by Southwest, uh, March 13th, 2016 and, uh, San Diego film festival, uh, September 30th, 2016. It looks like it's hitting digital and some limited release on February 21st. Excellent. You remember Andy, I watched you through that hole in the wall. She was a wife. A lover. An erotic mystery. Who awakened the cruelty of an old man's desires. And stirred the secret dreams in a young man's heart. Judo Andy 1990. Film from uh, Zhang Yimou and Yang Feng Liang. Mostly Zhang Yimou. Uh, written by Liu Hang. Uh, stars Gong Li, a uh, longtime collaborator after this film uh, in the title role. Uh, also uh, stars uh, Li Baotian and Li Wei. Uh, and it's a pretty small cast. The whole thing really sort of just revolves around uh, this uh, set of, of characters. Uh, how did this this first in our Zhang Yimou series hit you? Well, I... I'm curious because I have seen this before, although it's been um, probably uh, 25 years since I've seen this film. So quite a while. So, I, But you had not seen this before, right? I had not. This was, that is true. This was a first. It so was. I, I'm, curious, I'm curious how it hit you. 
I'm conflicted about the film, honestly. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it uh, visually. I thought it was uh, really stunning. Use of color was stunning. I loved the just the, the general production design and the cinematography. You can tell, uh, you know, <laughs> Zhang Yimou's training and, and career as a cinematographer just shines, right? His placement of the camera was, uh, it, it felt very modern and contemporary. Not like a film that's you know twenty seven years old, uh, and so I I really liked that. I found that the story itself was really compelling. I I, I deeply enjoyed um, the very strange relationship dynamic uh, between these three major characters. It was diabolical, right? It was just twisted, and it was wrapped up in culture and mores and and constraints. Uh, and it was kind of exactly what I expected from this period uh, a film from China. Like this is what I this is kind of what I expect: a, a tale of oppression and loyalty and retribution and family and mess, just all wrapped up into one. Uh, I I found myself losing it a little bit when um, some of the the I, I don't even know if this is going to be a fair word, Andy, but uh, all I can say is directorial choice choices that lead to overacting. How's that? Is that too much? Okay. There are scenes where characters, characters who don't need to do so end up like throwing themselves downstairs and climbing downstairs by their hands. And it just, it, it those kinds of things like take me out of the, take me out of the film a little bit. And I, I end up questioning some of those choices, but um, so it, it's one of those films that I, I was able to uh, watch straight through, and I just finished it. Like, we we were recording this show. I mean, I just finished it probably three hours ago, and I was able to watch the entire thing through and then watch a couple of scenes over again that I thought were particularly powerful. And so it's it's pretty fresh. I can say my overall opinion is is strong. I, I really enjoyed this as, as kind of the earliest thing that I've seen of Zhang Yimou's, and, and I, I love the connective sort of tissue, the thematic tissue that you can sort of, that, that I could at least feel in this film that I remember from some of his later films that I've, I've already seen. So I don't know how did it hold up after 25 years. You know, I, I really enjoyed it still. I mean, I, I didn't love it as much. I feel like when I first saw it, I was really taken by it. Um, it could have been that I was just so bitter watching it this go around that the picture quality was such garbage. <laughs> Because, um, uh, and we'll talk about this later, um, yeah. getting into cinematography, but I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. The colors are just sumptuous. I mean, it really just radiates beauty. Um, unfortunately, the DVD transfers that it has had here in the States are all just really piss poor. And it's just such a shame. And it's so frustrating because I feel like when I watch it, I, I think everything that I saw back in, that, in my, it was an international cinema class that I saw this in. Um, and I'm pretty sure everything was on 16 millimeters. So I'm assuming it was a much better looking print. Um, that's just an assumption um, I want to believe. <laughs> so, but um, it's just, it's so frustrating. And so I, um, that that kind of just bothered me. The the quality just wasn't there to watch. But um, I still really enjoyed the story. I didn't love it as much as I felt I loved it the first time. But I I found so much compelling stuff to watch in it. And the characters were so interesting. The look, the way that uh, uh, that Zhang Yimou shot the film, everything was just um, really I, I really enjoyed. It was um, a, a, just a fascinating uh, look at. Um, his you know, his story that he tells here of like 1920s China. 
And, you know, the characters I, I found so interesting. And I think what I find so interesting in films like this is some of the tradition and the the way that society ran back then. I mean, you've got right at the beginning, we learned that that this our antagonist, um, as he is called often uncle or Jin Shan, um, he is um, he buys this woman to be his third wife and the other two before her basically he um, abused until they died um, because he really wants an heir to his uh, to his uh, little dye factory that he has seeing kind of the tradition with, with, with you know the way that you can buy a woman and she has no rights and I mean essentially it's it's you know indentured servitude it's just terrible. Um, uh, and then just all the strange other things that go along, like when they f- there's finally a baby in the film, and they go through this naming convention, and how the whole all the like the village elders come together, and they go through this sheet that they have where they like track all the names that have been given to this generation, and they've got to find just the right name for the kid. It's like what a weird thing. And when uh, when he dies, and they have to like try to stop them from carrying him to his grave like 49 times it's it's so strange and so i really enjoy all of those little elements and being introduced to this whole world and in that world and seeing the confines that it creates watching these uh, these principal um, protagonists judo and uh uh ching king uh, i think i'm saying it somewhat right as they um struggle with their relationship. So it's it's a beautifully touching film. I really enjoyed watching it this go-around. I don't think I've in, internalized a couple of things. Uh, you know, one of them is is this idea of the hyper-orientalization. As I was reading up on the film, I stumbled on this book, you know, that I think I've run into before when we've talked about some other, you know, Asian cinemas, uh, Ma Sheng Mei's uh, book, Asian Diaspora and East-West Modernity. And one of the criticisms that this levels at Zhang Yimou is that uh, that he is directly catering to a global cinema eager for tales of exoticism from the primitive Orient, right? That this was, that ultimately your uh, claim that you really like those elements, like the blockage of the of the casket and the naming convention ceremony, uh, is an indicator that you as a Westerner have just been played. <laughs> so well, I, don't know, the... I don't know what to make of that. Like, it's a historical feature. So I'm trying to figure out in my head, I'm trying to sort of rationalize, why is that a criticism of Zheng Yimou making a period film uh, in China by a Chinese scholar? Yeah, it's it's strange. It's like saying, um, oh, Westerners only like samurai films because of that exotic primitive uh, nature. I don't know. I think it's it's kind of silly. I mean, you could say the same thing about watching uh, films about King Arthur um, or Vikings. Or, or here, anything. I mean, it, you know... T- yeah, the old the, West. Typically, the West. Yeah, absolutely. Why did we like uh, 310 to Yuma or The Magnificent Seven or, you know, whatever? Um, you know, it, it feels like, are, is it, are we exporting a, a hyper-Westernization, a view of, of the West to the, a, a global appetite for, um, you know, the exotic <laughs> American West? But see, that's the thing. It's like, if it sells, if people are interested in it, what's wrong with that? It's, you know, you're, you're telling a story in a particular time 
why should there be anything wrong with doing that and, and catering, you know, putting your story in a world? I mean, it's no different than doing a steampunk story or, or a dinosaur story or a sci-fi story. Okay, so, you know, maybe can you look at the same thing in a, in a film like City of God, which is obviously, it's, it's only, you know, it's fairly modern, uh, a contemporary film, but, but could you take a film, it, is the criticism that you could tell this same story in the same place without these specific elements that are hyper-orientalized, right? You could take out the ceremony about the, the 49, um, you know, blocking the, the uh, processional 49 times. You could take out the naming ceremony that is particularly exquisitely uh, oriental, and, and I'm saying that in big air quotes, right? The, the, the stereotype. Uh, and... Uh, could you tell the same story, and would it would it detract from judo as a as a cinematic experience? I that's that's my sense of the criticism that is is levied by Ma here, and and I I just found it really interesting that that I I don't know I haven't really in, internalized that on this film yet. I guess my sense of it is, you know, when when a filmmaker is telling a story, I mean they they want to draw details from the the period into the story to. Uh, to give their their tale more depth and and to uh, weave more layers into it, and I uh, I don't know I, I kind of think that it's a, a bunk theory if if a if a filmmaker um, is going to do that and and I mean why, I don't know I guess it just I don't see why uh, why they would have to limit themselves to not depicting some of that stuff I mean it's really interesting stuff and I don't know why. Um, a, a filmmaker would have to limit what they can depict of a culture for fear that all of a sudden, oh, now we're just exoticizing um, uh, these elements of our culture to draw more people to it. I, I don't know. It just it yeah. seems kind of silly to me. I, I you know, I, and, and... I, I just like the details. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating details that I didn't know. And I think that other people could find you know, weird U.S. customs just as fascinating. It's just, or, you know, or customs from, uh, you know, people down the block or, you know, mm -hmm. people who, you know, do something, you know, practice a different religion or something. Well, it, there you go. I mean, it, it's broad cultural strokes that I think is more of a, a criticism and not, you know, like, hey, let's go to Andy's house and make fun of how he eats. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but but don't don't worry. You do that all we're the gonna, time, though. We're, we're going to come back to this uh, because Ma has has some equally uh, interesting critiques of Raise the Red Lantern, which we're going to be talking about uh, next week. So I, it's it's a, we are talking about that next week, right? Did I just lie? Yes. Okay. <laughs> no, you're you're uh, right. Uh, so it is a really interesting thing, and it's a thing that I find myself increasingly observant of. Like, what, how, how do we, are we making the right case here? A case for history, or a case for satisfying a, a market appetite at the expense of, of potential sort of authenticity to the culture? I don't know, but I found it a really interesting thing. It's going to be an interesting thing to continue talking about as we continue looking at Yamu's uh, career. And looking at some of the choices uh, that he's made as he's gone forward, whether it's the wuxia and kind of the that uh, crouching tiger sort of sword fighting mm -hmm. sort of stuff, or you know the Great Wall and what yeah. he's doing there. So yeah, it'll be to, interesting it, to see. <laughs> not to not to lob a spoiler, but if that critique can be levied at judo, uh, my goodness, 
what can you say about it uh, in the wall? I mean, you want to talk right, about right. hyper orientalization? The trailer itself is a, a uh, hyper orientalized uh, catering, a, a, you know, example of catering to global cinema, eager for tales of exoticism from the primitive Orient. That's what the movie is about. It's practically yeah. its IMDb description. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about these these characters, though. I think you have a good point about these three characters and their relationship to to um, you know the story. Yeah, you've got these three uh, really interesting characters. Uh, Judo is the wife that uh, that is purchased by Jin Shan, who owns this uh, this dye factory, and his his nephew uh, Chang King. I, I know I'm just going to be saying all these names wrong this whole series. <laughs> um, he he is the he's his nephew, but it's not really by blood. He was taken in, and um, and he's been kind of raised as the son. But as he says, no son of mine would be so stupid. You know, he's he's a terrible person. This Jin Shan. I mean, he's a just an awful awful person. And uh, but it's interesting because this film, I mean, you read about it and a lot of people pull a lot of allegories out of it about how um, uh, Zhang was kind of looking at, um, I mean, it takes place in the in the 20s and they're looking at kind of men in power and the anti-feudal views of the 20s. But at the same time, you can also read this allegory for uh, for the communism that was going on in the 80s and and kind of the anti-communist views that Yimou likely had. Um, and then somebody else I read was anti-Confucian. And so all of these different um, allegories that you can see and just how these lives are stifled by the rules of these rigid customs. And you get this, this really incredible sense of oppression. I mean, certainly... Uh, from Judo herself, being a woman in this society and having to be sold. So, you know, I'm sure is like she's probably from a poor farm family who needed the money and they sell her to this guy to get some money. And that's, uh, that's kind of her lot in life. And the way that she kind of plays with um, uh, her power that she kind of finally draws, I thought was really interesting. But just speaking to the oppression, you know, then you also have the, uh, the, uncle and the nephew, who also are kind of stuck in this oppressive society. I mean, the nephew is so oppressed that, I mean, he has plenty of times to even uh, kill his uncle, like throw him off a cliff or, um, or, you know, leave him somewhere or, you know, and he keeps re- re- deciding to save his uncle and he keeps sticking with things. Because he's just kind of so um, passive about it and, and afraid to step out of the norm. And then, of course, the, you know, the uncle who is just, I mean, he, he's just kind of built into this system. So I guess his oppression, he's willingly gone along with it and is just now a part of the system. So interesting, interesting trio. I think it really is. And I, it, to me, it, I, you know, any story of oppression ends up being kind of a story of retribution or vengeance for that oppression in, in some way. And, and I think the uncle, you know, or uncle, he's, he is, uh, uh, the way he acts out is uh, almost in direct response to his inability to, you know, do the thing that a man is supposed to do in, and that is to breed a son. Right. He it turns out he's impotent and uh, he can't do the one thing that he really needs to do. And and so um, he's you know, the, his story in this film is just about the fall of 
you know, the stereotype of man. And at, at the same time, you look at the way the nephew behaves toward him and and how their stories sort of, the, the, the demand curve crosses halfway through the film, and it becomes a story of, of you know, the, the nephew getting, uh, you know, in, in a sense, vengeance. Like, I, I found myself kind of wondering, why is he, is he keeping him alive? What is the story that he wants to, the narrative that he needs to play out and that he needs uncle to watch? Um, I I found that a, a sort of a puzzling thing in a very good way. Like I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to learn what he you know what he needed to what demons he was trying to exercise uh, in how he was treating Uncle. Yeah, it was it was very interesting watching this decision that uh, that he had time after time to kind of keep saving his uncle. Um, it, you know, I mean, he after his spill when uh, when Uncle is coming back from. Uh, selling silk and he finds him on the side of the road and he's like had a stroke and he's got this opportunity to kind of drop him off a cliff but he doesn't and then um, then he's in this wheelchair or this kind of barrel wheelchair and uh, it's like there's there are always these opportunities to kind of uh, kind of leave him and it's uh it's really kind of by pure accident that that uncle ends up you know falling because of the the sun into this um into this uh, vat of dye and drowning and it's uh, uh but even then it's like they're still not freed by him it's so yeah. it's it's an interesting way that the story unfolds and that's something i really loved about the screenplay was how i never knew where it was going i i totally was surprised that the reveal of the fact that uh, Judo and and uh, uh, the nephew are having this affair is revealed as the midpoint of the film. That feels like and, an act three, yeah. Yeah, it totally feels like that's going to be part of the climax. And uh, and even then, you get the uncle dying essentially as the uh, leading us into the third act. And then really, it's it's everything dealing with um, with the son. Uh, as uh, as we get to the end there, and so it was really interesting. Um, I, I I loved the script. It just it was always surprising that you didn't know it's really Star Wars. It's the <laughs> prequel, right? It's a story of Anakin, pretty much. <laughs> Can they find Anakin? Turns out it's he's already Darth Vader, and he's ten years old. Uh, the 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 thing that I think is most interesting about that transition is that you know once you realize that the secret is out and that it comes so early, the entire story, the frame of the entire story changed for me, and it became not the story about oppression and and you know the secrets, but the story of family and loyalty and the film as a commentary on the things that we do uh, to to. Um, to, in service of loyalty to an ideology, right? In this case, it's it's to family, um, but it is also so the the, the price we pay uh, for the ideologies we serve, and and I thought that was that was really interesting, and ended up for me kind of justifying, starting to justify the choices that nephew and and in fact judo. Uh, also make, and and we can't underscore enough judo's role in. Um, as an agent of vengeance, right? She is is not an idle participant here. She takes a a very uh, sort of active and enraged role in in her own um, sort of advocacy against Uncle. And really, it's only because uh, because of the nephew's uh, the persistence to stop her that she she doesn't really follow through. But she seems right. ready to fall. I mean, she's got the arsenic and she's like ready to kill him. You know, she's. 
she wants it out. She wants him out of the way. And yeah. it's, it's interesting how, um, how tortured they are. And what really uh, struck me is how it almost is even worse after the uncle dies. Um, when they kind of say, well, you can't live with your aunt anymore because uh, that's just weird. And um, they kind of force him out. And so now the two of them don't even get to be under the same roof. They have to go kind of sneak off and meet way out in the, in some little, you know, hole in the ground so they could, uh, you know, continue their tryst. It's, it's just tragic how yeah. this, uh, this, the period that they're in just restricts so much about them. And, and this fear of being discovered and this fear of, of gossip and all of that really kind of leads to this, uh, um, this secret relationship, which only fuels the son's uh, fire, really. And because the the son, uh, it's, it's an interesting character. I never really understand if the son fully understands that this is his mom and dad and he's just angry at them, or if he really thinks that he was uncle's son and that his brother and and mother are having this affair and he's just really upset about the whole thing and wants to, uh, wants to end them. I never quite get it, but is, he's, he's such a frightening character. Oh God, he's so creepy. Is, is that a weakness in, in the film for you? No, not at all. I, I love the opportunity that is not spelled out and I get to kind of think about that. And, and I, uh, I get to kind of play around with, uh, you know, what, what does that mean? And what is going through this quiet son's head? Um, and uh, I mean, because he does call uncle, he does call him daddy. And that's, yeah. you know, his, he finally speaks and that's what he says. And so I, I, it's almost like if he does understand it, it's almost like he willingly goes along with it. And that's something that I read about in, uh, I think it was actually Ebert um, who was talking about, um, some of these allegor- allegorical reads that you can get from this film and how um, if uh, if um, uncle is kind of representative of kind of the communist China and the, the, the or the Maoist China, that the son is kind of the uh, the silent red guard and they kind of, and just kind of doing whatever um, his father says. So it, it's an interesting way to read it. I don't know if I, if I see it that way, but at the same time, I'm like, it's, it's an interesting way to depict it because the son just kind of willingly kind of goes along with everything that his dad says. But even then, you know, there's just this kind of this level of danger with him. Like uncle falls into the, the die and he just stands there and laughs. And (laughs) I mean, I know he's really young and doesn't understand what's going on, but still. Yeah. It's super creepy, super weird. I, I, question and and i you know that that's the thing that i'm muscling through too is this you know you can't really win with him like who is he defending whose ideology is he defending right the the uncle dies and we know that he was coming as as uh, some sort of a of a defense mechanism for his uncle he had this kind of relationship with his uncle the uncle is gone now so now who is he defending is he defending the mom the honor of the mom the the integrity of the mom uh or is he is he still defending the integrity of the of the red state of the uncle you know what i mean like um i i i struggle with that a little bit to figure out what what is his role in you know protecting the identity of whatever it is that he's protecting 
Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that there's an answer. But man, he is. Uh, he's creepy. He's so creepy. <laughs> oh like goodness! Always watching. Always watching. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, do we do we want to talk about anything specific to uh, Liu Hung? Uh, the wrote the script, or shall we? Have we kind of talk about everything we need to talk about there? Uh, the only thing I was going to say about him is uh, he is a Chinese writer and kind of a realist writer. And um, I, I don't really know anything about him at all other than this was based off of a novelette that he wrote in 1987 called Fushi Fushi. And he won the National Prize for Best Novelettes with that. And that became the basis for this film. So that's, that's really all I was going to say about him. Well, and we should, we should probably note that in the, in the book... Um, uh, the relationship between um, is incestuous, right? The the relationship between the the mom and the, it's a real uh, I think it's a real uncle, it's real nephew, I think nephew yeah, I think relationship. Right. And in the movie, uh, they they didn't want to deal with the incest relationship, and so it's an adopted nephew, and that's when you know you know she decides that it's okay to pursue this relationship because there's no. You know, there's no blood relationship there. And so I don't know how much of a difference that makes, but it's an interesting choice because the movie's already weird enough as it is. <laughs> you know, is it already weird enough so we don't need incest or is it already weird enough? Let's throw in the incest. Right, right, right. I don't, I don't know. You could go either way. Well, I think uh, I think to a certain extent, and I don't know how um, how uh, Liu's writing was received in China. I mean, obviously he won an award for his story, but... Considering the struggle that you, uh, Zhang Yimou and uh, Yang Fengling had with uh, the release of this film, um, I, I, it just makes me wonder if they had a decision, you know, in order to get a better release, maybe we should leave the incest out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, because it, it ended Didn't up, help, I mean, but... this film, as it was, was banned for, you know, a lot of years. Yeah, so, um, exactly. Let, let's talk about uh, Zhang Yimou as a director. Yeah, I don't really think we need to speak much about Yang uh, Fengliang, who, um, from everything that I've read, I mean, he's listed as co-director, but um, it seems to be general consensus that this is really Zhang Yimou's film. Um, and if you look at uh, Yang's listing, there's really nothing else. So, um, uh, I mean, I, I think that he was involved in uh, Codename Cougar with um, Zhang Yimou, the year before this, but uh, and a few things after, but I don't think it was anything that uh, that there was uh, probably worth discussing. So I, I don't know the relationship between these two. I don't know how Yang got uh, co-director credit, but it really everything that I've always heard. This is really Zhang Yimou's film. It it is um, it, it is a lovely film, and much of that I think is just due to the way. Uh, Zhang Yimou understands the camera. Yeah, I mean, he is really kind of a, a, a director, producer, writer. He even acted in some stuff. And like you mentioned, he is a former cinematographer. So he really had an understanding of how to um, put images on film. And it's incredibly clear here. Right from the start, I mean, just you get beautiful colors. And uh, he just can, keeps this intense color palette up through uh, the whole film and through his whole career, really has. Um, I also love the lengthy shots that he has, some just really beautifully long shots as we kind of, uh, as he allows things to happen within the frame. 
I love the way he shoots with the sun. I mean, he uses the sun as such an incredible tool in this film. He doesn't hide from it. He is not afraid to use really natural uh, flare, like sun flare in, in shot. He's He loves, uh, you know, using sun as a backdrop to wonderful silhouette uh, objects and people. And uh, I found that super engaging. It wasn't just a one-time, like, treat. Uh, this is a guy who will put the camera down low to get a dramatic angle on a backlit subject, and it makes for better visual texture in the film. I was really moved by that. Really a, a strong understanding of how to make images work. And and I think that uh, understands that there's more uh, in an image than just the pretty image. I think that he found ways to compose shots that uh, I think also ended up just feeling like there was a lot of meaning behind those shots. So I really enjoyed that as well. You want to talk a little bit about the uh, the fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers? What does that mean? Yeah, there's this uh, in in Chinese cinema. Um, I, I don't know if they've broken it down into just generations or or what, but um, there certainly is the what they call the fifth generation. And this was beginning in the mid to late '80s. Um, this group of filmmakers who. Um, really helped uh, Chinese cinema start getting an, an international uh, presence. Um, a lot of them graduated from the Beijing Film Academy in 1982. It's kind of a big chunk of them, including uh, Zhang Yimou, along with, uh, let's see if I can get these names, well, Chen Kaige, uh, Zhang Junsao, Tian Zhuangzhuang, and some others. Uh, the graduates consisted, I'm just going to read this here. These graduates con- constituted the first group of filmmakers to graduate since the Cultural Revolution, and they soon jettisoned traditional methods of storytelling and opted for a more free and unorthodox approach. So I think that, um, uh, you know, based on how Chinese cinema was before, this was you know an opportunity for some, some new up-and-comers, basically, to kind of find... A, uh, a new way to tell their stories. And um, I think that what uh, Zhang Yimou does here, um, I mean, certainly, a, you know, his film, this is his, I believe it's his second film after uh, Red Sorghum um, gets banned. And uh, I, I think that that speaks to what people in China were expecting at the time out of their films. And um kind of how uh, um, how these guys were pushing those limits. And sorry, this is his third film. Judo is his third film. Oh, right. He did uh, he did kind of a thriller thing in there somewhere, right? Or did that come after? Yeah, he did. It was um, Codename Cougar, which uh, he just completely dismisses as just, uh, you know, his worst film and doesn't like talking about it. <laughs> why, aren't, why aren't we doing that one? Sounds like right? I know. A real humdinger. <laughs> Let's do first shot, last shot. Um, speaking to first shot, um, and, and to what I was saying about the way that he composed his shots, uh, the first shot is uh, Chang King. I'm just, I'm never going to get that name right. Tian Qing. Tian Qing. Tian, Tian, Tian Qing. Uh, walking his horse across a vast field of uh, just yellow wheat below these uh, beautiful blue mountains. Um, but it's not just like this open, you know, uh, old west shot of the hero coming into town this is a very confined shot and i love the way he shoots it's a very long lens he does a lot of long lens photography in landscapes to really compress everything so so 
uh, nephew, I'm just going to call him, is really kind of compressed in this landscape. And it's this beautiful landscape with these beautiful yellow and blue colors, but there's nothing open about it. You don't really get outside of the mountains. You don't get outside of it. And it's just like he's squeezed in it. So that's our first shot. And the last shot might as well have been Firestarter. It was great. (laughs) Uh, It's a freeze frame on this fire uh, that judo has set she's burning the uh, the the silk mill the dye factory down uh, uh, along with herself in it and Tian Qing and uh, Tian Bai we we assume uh, as the score kicks in and it's a it is a traditional children's song the children singing the song and it's all it, it is also a bit of an homage to a to a song that we heard the kids singing uh, in in the village uh, a little while ago um, prior to this. So uh, we assume that this is the ultimate end uh, as we see her. What it, what it, the, the, the way they do the last few shots, this final sequence of fire, uh, we have her uh, sort of being transposed in and out of the flames right before we hit that still frame and the credits roll. Uh, it's really grim. Yeah, it's a, it's a brutal way to end it. <laughs> You know, we just as we as uh, that's it. We're we're out. So uh, it's uh, I I like the way that it, that we uh, kick it off. It already feels like this is a a beautiful society, but it's also a very confining society. Um, I like that kind of read on it. Um, and I you know thematically, I guess it leads to uh, the destruction of these characters and and demise. And and these two characters have kind of tried to find their own way out of this society and it's led to um, basically I guess a, a passionate relationship that uh, has taken them to hell so <laughs> <laughs> yes I agree with that uh, yeah it is it's the ultimate payoff right it's like we tried we tried to pay dues to the ideology we tried to I mean it, it ends up I think also being something of a statement of the um, of the uh, again the cultural revolution right it's like we we we're we're a part of this we're not really crazy about it and uh, ultimately trying to do this thing you're doing is going to end in in misery one way or the other yeah. and I, so it's it's pretty grim it is yes it is the cast is as we said in the beginning it's a it's a small cast um, uh, we we don't uh, we don't know who did the casting probably not we even don't. say that. All right. It's a small cast. No. We've got Gong Li as Judo, the title character. This was the third film that they had done together. Ended up doing how many? They did eight films together. And kind of funny that this uh, this film is, is sort of the story of their lives. <laughs> well, maybe not quite. But um, yeah, they did end up getting uh, romantically involved later. But I mean, they were involved. They did uh, eight films together. This was their third. So she, her first leading role was actually in Red Sorghum, which he did um, a few years before this one. And then she was also in Codename Cougar. She was in this. She was in Raise the Red Lantern, which we'll be talking about next week. Um, the story of Q Ju. Um, was she in To Live? I can't remember. I know she was in Shanghai Triad. Shanghai Triad is when um, they developed a romantic relationship, which ended during Shanghai Triad. And I don't know if that kind of put a kibosh on them hanging out and working together or what, but they didn't come back and do anything else until 2006's Curse of the Golden Flower. So, um, but she's she's still a busy a busy little bee. I mean, she's just uh, what was that movie that she just 
did last year that I wanted to see because it just looks crazy. It's the Monkey King 2. That's what it is. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think we talked about that trailer even. Yeah. Because it just oh, looks geez. bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. She was, I, you know, she was delightful in the film. I thought she, uh, she, we've already talked about just kind of the the sensitivity that she brings to the role, but also the the spirit of vengeance. And I think she's, she, uh, she carries the weight of a really weighty role. She, yeah, in a in a story that I think um, is about a woman in in the society that where she's really um, oppressed. Um, I think she does an incredibly powerful job, particularly the scene when she realizes that Tian Qing has been watching her through this hole um, in, as when she's in the, her changing room. She goes through these great emotions of hiding the hole and, and just being so disgusted with him to all of a sudden having this moment where she decides to not cover up the hole. And she goes back into the changing room and um, decides, I'm going to... I'm going to do this. And she takes off her clothes. And part of it is to kind of reveal herself um, uh, naked before him. But the other part, I think, also was to just, uh, you know, take power of her situation of, of being this victim of abuse and letting this other person in on what's going on and, and see the damage that uncle has done to her body and just all of these these bruises and just, uh, you know, just horrible um things that he's done. And it's just, I found that so powerful and so touching and um, just heartbreaking when she does that. But also just, I felt like uh, there was, there was a lot of strength to that character stuck in this situation. And I think that's what Gong Li brings to the film. And that's something that I've always felt with her when I watch her. And I really enjoyed um, uh, seeing her in this film. I, I thought so too. And I, I think that that sequence that you're describing, the, two points first it, it goes from sexual to non-sexual so quickly right uh, it is sexual when he's a peeping tom and as soon as you get in the room you're looking through the hole and you see her as she's just kind of frailly displaying herself and her wounds uh it 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 turns on a dime and it turns for Tianqing too which i think is really wonderfully played but i think that sequence is made all the more uh, sort of heavy because they didn't shy away from showing what uncle was doing to her. Right. When he has the chair over her, she's tied up, she's bound, she's gagged. He is sitting on a stool over her torso and he is, uh, he's, you know, putting essentially, I, it's effectively waterboarding her, right? I mean, he's pouring like water or vodka or some, some sort of beverage, <laughs> wouldn't be vodka, yeah, right. on, on her face and as she's, you know, gagged with a, with a rag. And it's, it is, uh, it's horrible. And that's how we open their relationship. That's how we demonstrate who this man is. Uh, so that when we actually see the wounds, uh, it, it is a it's it's a it's it's heavy. Yeah, it really is. It, it really just uh, you know breaks your heart, and it, it puts you as the audience into an interesting place. When later, when Jin Shan is uh, is crippled and in his little wheelchair, and they are kind of torturing him, and, and moments like when they, they have this, uh, you know, his, uh, Jin Shan's bedroom is upstairs, and the only way to get him up is they now have rigged a pulley system, and so, so uh, Tian Qing will put him in this rope and pull him all the way up to the top floor. Well, 
what he does when they uh, when Uncle pisses them off is he basically lifts them up halfway and then ties the rope off and leaves <laughs> them hanging there. <laughs> that is so, so horrible. So, uh, but uh, you know, he's done such bad things, and it, it it makes me as an audience member go, "Yeah, he deserves it." Oh, but you know, now I'm just as bad as he is, and it's it's it's, it's puts you in a really interesting place. You know, there, the film is full of those kinds of things, not to get us too sidetracked there, but the the other sequence that I found really horrible was one of just sort of social torture when they're all at the birthday party, at the three-year-old uh, birthday party of Chambai, uh, and, and they're all laughing at Qianqing for, you know, not having a, that he wants a wife and, and his uncle, you know, he'll have to make a lot of money and maybe buy one prettier than than judo and uh, that is that strikes me as as a it's incredibly insensitive uh, sequence and uh, almost as sort of uh, gruesome socially as some of the other stuff that they portray that's actually gruesome uh, in in the way they treat one another. I thought it was ugh. Yeah, interesting. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It was a very yeah, interesting. Right. Right. Um, so you want to talk about Li Wei as Jin Chan, uncle? Yeah, I don't. I don't know much about these actors other than this film. Uh, Lee Wei, I mean, he had been acting, it looks like, at least according to IMDb, I'm guessing because he's a Chinese actor that this is probably um, thin. Um, but it looks like he'd been acting since the 40s. And it looks like this was his last film. Um, I guess he retired and then uh, ended up passing away in in uh, 2005. Um, but um, boy, does he play the baddie well. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's he's terrible. He's also a terrible. Uh, he'd be a, a terrible boss, you know, across cultures, right? I mean, he he comes off as as kind of a, a cross cultural monopoly guy, right? The the nineteen twenties, uh, um, you know, roaring twenties businessman, you know, fleecing the poor uh, in order to you know get a shiny gold monocle. That's that's who I feel like this would be if you took him out of his village where he runs his little dye shop and put him in, you know, New York. Uh, he he would he would move right across. Totally, he's totally that guy. Uh, and uh, do you, I mean, do you want to go in? Do you have anything to say about Li Bao Tian or uh, uh, Zheng Jian? The only other thing I was going to say about um, Li Bao Tian is that he is in Shanghai Triad, another film where that uh, he reunites with Gong Li, and so um, I I've never seen that one. There are a number of uh, Zhang Yimou films that I have missed, um, but it does make me want to kind of go back and see that one now. It was. We yeah. talked about it. it was uh, you know banned for a long time. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it was uh, you know this this. Uh, I think the people in China, uh, the authorities, uh, did not like the allegorical nature of this, and that uh, it seemed that Zhang Yimou was uh, you know saying, "Hey, these these rigid customs that we have are are bad." And uh, so, you know, not to mention the fact that there was probably more brazen sexuality in this film than they had been used to at the time. Um, And even just some of the the ways that he portrayed that, you know, when they first start um, uh, having their sexual encounter and they knock that stick that's holding the kind of the wheel and you get that really incredible shot of that red, that huge, I mean, these bolts of cloth are so long and you get it just unspooling and it's just, it's kind of like lumping onto the ground, like this, this kind of 
uh, fleshy red flower. <laughs> it's just like, it said a lot. It kind of says a lot. And so, you know, I can see why maybe, you know, a country that was not used to this sort of filmmaking uh, might say, you know what, we don't want this to be shown here. That is brazen cloth. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. Oh, my. Uh, cinematography. This is a thing of note, right? How they actually shot this film. This is a thing to to note, that makes this film more special. Absolutely. Yeah, Gu Changwei and Yang Lun uh, were the two cinematographers uh, credited for this film. Uh, they shot this film in three-strip Technicolor, and that is what is so amazing about this, uh, this production. According to Roger Ebert, uh, when the Technicolor company abandoned its uh, the three-strip Technicolor process, and uh, um, what they did is they had they had three factories. They closed two of them down. And apparently the third factory, they packed up and sold it to China. And I don't know what it was that, uh, you know, gave uh, Zhang Yimou the idea to, hey, shoot this in three-step strip Technicolor. But he did. And um, when you see these bolts of cloth and the, just the, this, the powerful strength of the colors that he uses, the reds, the blues, the yellows, um, everything is just so intense. You can only imagine how gorgeous this film must look on uh, like a, a beautiful print of it. Unfortunately, it just has never um, give, been given the treatment. I mean, geez, if there's ever a film that needs a, a nice Criterion remastering, it's this one. Gotta wonder why that hasn't happened yet. I know. I mean, I thought with the success of some of uh, Zhang Yimou's later films that uh, they would start pushing some of these older films back out through some of these specialty companies. And I mean, the company that uh, that has released the the DVDs has just done a terrible job. Like I said, I mean, it's not even in a you know a regular aspect ratio. It's just like the four by three pan and scan version. So. It, you know, and it, it it's hard to find. At least it was hard to find. Um, I just got word that my library copy copy arrived today. Um, <laughs> so so that's good. Uh, you were able to find your library copy, and we did put a link. I don't know how long it's going to last, but if you want to watch the thing, there's a link in the show notes for a YouTube version that just cropped up. I I don't know why we didn't find it before after searching YouTube for it, but it is the uh the subtitled version and it's it's pretty clean um and it's the whole thing on youtube so uh, you can check it out it's the pan and scan version that we watched but um but at least you can get through it it is a, a beautiful film definitely definitely production is. design th- these colors are are fantastic and i didn't notice it until i read this note this is one thing that i do remember talking about way back in my international cinema class when we were talking about this film is is the use of colors and and thematically what uh, Zhang, Yu, Zhang Yimou might have meant with each of them and how uh, in this blog that I found, they start talking about it. Uh, this is from the Politics and Film blog. The vibrant deep red for lust and passion or blood and death. The bright yellow for moments of realization and stark insight and the soothing blue for those of stillness and compromise. Um, I mean, when, when the film starts uh, and and she's brought to this place as... as uh, as nephew is, comes home 
everything is in yellows and that's when he kind of first meets her and everything before everything starts turning red and then when uncle dies everything's kind of turning blue and they change throughout the film and then when we get to the ending it's back to these reds and then of course everything goes up in flame it's really interesting the way that they kind of play with the colors as as ways to kind of symbolize what uh, what might be happening in here I, I loved how the colors um, sort of transition to the characters, right? Be- depending on what they dye, uh, the, those colors stay on their hands and on their skin and, and almost get carried from scene to scene. And I, I, I want to watch it again uh, with that in mind because I wonder if, those, if some of the color transitions on the characters are, are kind of leading indicators of, of what's to come or what has just come. Uh, it, it, it feels much more intentional uh, than maybe I, I would have thought. Well, and when Uncle dies, he drowns in the blue dye. Yeah. And his body, when they fish him out, it, like his clothes are just kind of that solid dark blue. It's really uh, interesting. And then for his funeral, I mean, they are just in complete white. Yeah. So it's an interesting way to play with it. I feel like I don't really know how this film did uh, in award season. Was it uh, How was it considered when it was released? Well, considering the film was banned in China uh, when it was first made, it really ended up getting rescued by its international discovery. And that's really kind of what happened. I don't know if it was some big uh, Viridiana, like sneaking it out of China sort of thing that they they had to do, or if they had already kind of submitted it to to the Cannes Film Festival uh, or what. But it did play at Cannes. It ended up losing to Wild at Heart for the Palm Door, but it did get nominated for Palm Door. So it says a lot. And that really is where people first discovered it. And it started really making kind of this uh, this international splash. It got uh, nominated for a number of other awards. Uh, it won some other awards. And actually, it ended up being the first uh, Chinese film to ever get nominated for an Oscar. And it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. It did lose to Journey of Hope, a, a Swiss film, but um, but that's kind of really what got Zhang Yimou on the map and got him uh, the exposure that he needed to kind of keep his career. I don't know how things went in China if, because it was banned, if they were not going to let him make any other films, or um, um, and, and then only because of the success of this particular film that they said, okay, you can make another one, but you better follow the rules this time. I'm not exactly sure how that how that all played out, but this is really kind of uh, what uh, I guess this is kind of what the the fifth generation was all about, kind of introducing more Chinese cinema to a global audience, and this was a really big step in that direction. Uh, Zhang Yimou is. Uh, a- controversial guy related to Chinese social policy. Uh, lucky he's also rich. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was lucky that he's uh, directed and produced some pretty big films. Uh, he was investigated for violating China's one-child policy, uh, uh, allegedly fathered seven children with four women. I think the only ones that <laughs> that he got caught uh, against were, were three of them uh, with one of his uh, wives. Uh, and so he had to pay an unplanned birth and social maintenance fee of $1.2 million. Yeah, that's a hefty fee. They're serious. Yeah, they really that. are. There is, there is no doubt. <laughs> um, so how did oh, uh, it do in the numbers? You know, uh, this is going to be a tricky series, uh, at least these first couple of films. Um, I haven't been able to find anything detailing how much uh, it cost 
or how much it made, except here in the United States. Um, the movie did have a limited two-screen release on Wednesday, March 6th, 1991, just before The Hard Way in New Jack City burst onto the screens. And then it expanded to about 39 screens in the U.S. and went on to make one point, uh, almost $2 million, just under $2 million, which is about $3.5 million in today's dollars. I wish that I had more, but I would like to think that at least the Oscar nomination uh, did help it find more of an audience. Go see it on YouTube and then send Zhang Yimou five bucks. <laughs> there you I go. think it's time, Andy. Let's, uh, why don't we head over and rank it? Let's do it. Just swipe up in your podcast player of choice. In the show notes, you'll find a link to Flickchart, and that will take you straight to Judo in uh, the Flickchart database. You can add it to your own list of films. Uh, you can stack rank it right along with us, and and let's see how it holds up. I'm, I'm going to bet, I'm going to lay odds, Andy, that this will perform better than The Danish Girl. I would think so. <laughs> I certainly hope so. All right. First up, we have Judo or Mad Max, 1979. Well, I would still watch Mad Max first. You would? I, yeah. I, I, I'm going to say Judo, though, because, man, is it gorgeous to look at. Really hard? Yeah. I just think there's so much more. I mean, don't get me wrong. Mad Max. I probably would watch Mad Max first. It's a fun film. But I just think looking at the uh, the cinematic, uh, just the the quality that Zhang Yimou infused with this uh, into this film. I mean, it just is it's a gorgeous film, and it's just a fascinating film to watch. So I enjoy both of these films quite a bit. But I'm going to pick Judo. All right, I'm going to give it to you. Okay, next up we have Judo or Fargo, uh, Little Coen mm-hmm. Brothers. I'm going with Fargo. Yeah, I'm going to go with Fargo. Judo. Or The Wind Rises, Hayao Miyazaki's uh, airplane animation. Oh, I adore The Wind Rises, but I'm going to be judo on this one. Judo for me as well. Judo or The Outlaw Josie Wales. Speaking of hunger for the exotic (laughs) West. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, I think I'm going to say judo still, though. Yeah, I think I will too. Judo or Never Let Me Go, one of our speakeasy films. Probably judo. Yeah. Unless you have a strong case to be made. I don't. Um, I was just thinking about Andrew Garfield and some of the the powerful moments that he has in that film, but I think I'm still judo. Yeah. All right. Judo or The Hurt Locker. Oh, man. I'd probably say The Hurt Locker, but I'll feel really bad about it. It's a strong film. I'm going to say The Hurt Locker. Oh, all right. I thought you were going to make me feel all bad because, you know... Because I do I that. Know. Last time I got in trouble because I was I, I was told that the Hurt Locker was uh, didn't represent what the troops were going through, and the troops didn't like it, and so I wasn't allowed to like it. <laughs> well, I still like it. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, judo or Out of the Past? A little uh, some film noir. I'm going with Out of the Past. Really? Uh huh. Well, yep. Jacques Tourneur. Yeah. I really enjoy that film. One of my favorite noirs. That's what I, yeah, that was what my guts was going to tell me. My guts. Your guts. <laughs> uh, I was trying to, I was trying to second guess and be a film school nerd, but uh, I think my, I think, I think I'm a film school nerd anyway. Either way I go. <laughs> All right. We got judo or the great escape. Oh, I'm the great escape. I would absolutely, absolutely watch the great escape first. I would say judo if only for length. <laughs> <laughs> Because the Great Escape is so long, that but is the I will great, the great gift escape. of the Great Escape is that it it is a long film that does not feel that long. I I'm gonna say the Great Escape. All right, Judo or Contagion? I'm gonna say Judo. 
Really? Yeah. I, I mean, I really enjoy Contagion, but I'm still saying Judo. I just I, feel like uh, Contagion is an interesting film uh, to watch, and I do enjoy it. But I feel like Judo is just, uh, you know, I feel like it's art. I just, I feel guilty about that because, you know, we had we did these disease films, and and it felt like, like you know... Contagion was the one that rose to the top because it turns out my memory of disease films is pretty crappy. Because <laughs> <laughs> it all lands in that stupid helicopter scene and outbreak. Yeah, there were some. So pretty I was trying, bad, uh, trying to give some credit to discussed. Contagion there. Hey, it's they're in uh, good company though, all and right. that lands Judo at uh, looks like at eighty on our list, right between uh, the good. Great Escape and Contagion. So it's a good spot for it. All right, that is a good spot. I'll take that. I will certainly take yeah, that. Yeah, kicking off our Zhang Yimou series, I think that's great. What does that do for your Letterboxd ranking at letterboxd.com slash uh, the next reel? I feel like this is a three and a half. Uh, maybe give it a f- uh, four star with that uh, half star of Andy Love. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that it takes the the uh, Andy Love half star to get you there. I was going to be a solid four star. Well, then there you go. We'll save four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's a, I think it's a solid for and that's you know that's on first day viewing, uh, so maybe you uh, maybe it, that's influenced by you not liking it as much as you liked it twenty five years ago. Well, remember also, I was so bitter. Yeah. <laughs> when I put it on, and I was looking at such like poor image quality, and I just I, <laughs> I felt are, nothing but frustration. You are impacted so, by that. I can. I, can it, see I that. really was. <laughs> It, it was so frustrating because I just remember, like, that was my memory of this film was this was one of the most sumptuous uh, films that I'd ever seen. And then I watch it. and It's just this grainy, awful DVD. So I want to I want to write a one star Amazon review, Pete. <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> you know, you should write the one star Amazon review and and mention uh, quite loudly in maybe all caps that you watch this movie on YouTube and that the, tra- the transfer was terrible. <laughs> right, I will. <laughs> All oh, right. Man. Well, we're oh, okay. So we're in the we, we've kicked off this Zheng Yimou series. Uh, where do we go from here? Well, we are going to be going just to his very next film, uh, Raise the Red Lantern. Uh, it's it's kind of this unofficial trilogy that we're not fully uh, talking about. Red Sorghum, this, and Raise the Red Lantern. Uh, it, it's three of his early films that. Uh, they all are kind of linked by uh, early 20th century pre-communist settings, themes around social constraint versus personal desire, lavish visual style, and of course the presence of Gong Li. So we're going to be uh, just going, I think, to the very next year to raise the Red Lantern. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to watching that one again. Again, it's also been probably about 25 years for me. This was in the same international cinema class, so looking forward to seeing that one again too. I can't wait. This is going to be a good one. Until then, I think you know uh, I got to go to bed. All right. Well, I have a new haircut style to try out of my son. I'm going to call it the nice and clean with the putting green on top. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> I'm going to kick it off with a two-star because it. It, it it's how I feel. Uh, it says Amazon should not sell these titles, says Kamran Safavi. 
I believe the quality of this transfer, along with the one for Raise the Red Lantern, is so horrific that it completely ruins the beautiful experience of watching these Gong Li Zhang Yimou movies. It should not even be offered for sale. Truly bad. <laughs> if you can't see it my way, you can't see it at all. Andy Nelson. <laughs> That's the half star I almost uh, made the film lose in right. making it. So that's it right there. <laughs> I, I'm bringing you a three star. And uh, okay. this one this one says, Gong Li does a very good job in acting. And you know who left that that review, Andy? Who? Ken Watanabe. That's right. Star of, star of stage and screen, actor Ken Watanabe uh, from hit films such as Inception, The Last Samurai, Batman Begins, and Letters from Iwo Jima. No, I know. I know you're going to tell me probably not the same Ken Watanabe, and I will tell you, not in my mind. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.